Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. But one thing I believe all human beings can identify with is that they have trusted and they have been betrayed. And if they're really honest, they've been on both sides of that. They've been the betrayer. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. I am the host, Steve Lowry, and as always with me is my co-host, the always witty, uh, Yvonne Godfrey. Thank you. So how he uses you a different compliment every time. <laughs> it's my favorite part. <laughs> I, I try to keep coming up with something different. It's, yeah. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I, I told you you're going to have to go to the mean, the mean adjectives at some point. <laughs> That's going to be well, well, well down the road, I'm sure. <laughs> but more accurate. Yeah. <laughs> more fun, too, maybe. <laughs> um, well, I, I wanted to... Um, uh, talk about the that we are here with our guests. This is actually our second show uh, that we are doing with Tommy and Adam Malone of the Malone Law Firm uh, at MaloneLaw.com, uh, based out of Atlanta, Georgia. But we are actually in the uh, in the beautiful home of Tommy and Debbie Malone uh, down here in North Palm Beach, Florida. And uh, and we appreciate you guys uh, so much having us here. And uh, and Yvonne, I got to say. Uh, we have, uh, I wish we had a picture of this. We have this, a spread of food that uh, Debbie has put out here for us uh, that is uh, uh, unsurpassable. They've, they've spoiled us rotten. I can't go back to the way we used to do podcasts anymore right. in our office. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now that I've had this, I can't go back. I'm a, I feel like a star now. I, I, the ne- <laughs> yeah, the next time we do this, we're going to have to figure out who's bringing the guacamole, who's bringing the shrimp, <laughs> you know. Right. <laughs> Um, but just, uh, it, it, Tommy, again, thank you so much for having us here. And, and Adam, thank you for, uh, for meeting with us. I'll, um, since we've already done one show with the two of you, I'd, I'll do a brief introduction. Um, uh, Tommy Malone uh, is known uh, across the nation as a uh, fantastic trial lawyer, uh, has been trying cases since 1966. Uh, Basically, Tommy, you were uh, one of the pioneers, if not the pioneer, of modern medical malpractice uh, cases, especially in the state of Georgia, uh, I would say. And um, I was the only one dumb enough to do it. <laughs> <laughs> there was one lawyer in Atlanta and me. We were the only two in the state that handled medical negligence cases. I mean, it takes guts, and, and at some point, I, I, I would love to do a, a, a very short uh, podcast of just the it's the start of your career and how you uh, how, how you built your career because it's certainly uh, not only a, a lesson in, in you know what it takes to be a great trial lawyer but just a, a lesson in perseverance and uh, and fortitude uh, because it, it didn't start out easy for you and uh, and you you weren't the great Tommy Malone back then that you are today <laughs> um, so but uh, but but Tommy has uh, received um, Awards from just about every trial lawyer group uh, that you can think of. Uh, been named best lawyer of the year, um, and, uh, and and best been in uh, best lawyers of America for uh, for many many years. So uh, so Tommy, uh, thank you so much, and um, and Adam, um, I should mention again that Tommy and Adam are father and son and have been practicing together for about almost 20, twenty years. Almost twenty years. Um, and Adam uh, has, has certainly um, uh, had, is a star in his own right. And, uh, and I will uh, just share one of the things you, uh, that Tommy shared with us off the, uh, 
uh, I don't want to say off the record, but before the podcast, uh, was that uh, that that Tommy uh, held the uh, the record verdict in Albany, Georgia, of six million dollars. I think it was Tommy. a over six. Yeah. And uh, and then and that record was broken by Adam when he went down there <laughs> and tried a case uh, and got twenty four and a half million dollars. And so, still uh, stands his record. <laughs> right. That's right. a that's a that's a pretty good father son team, if you ask me. That's right. That's right. So. And, um, and and Adam is uh, active in, in a number of groups. Uh, Adam and I actually have served on a couple of boards together with uh, Southern Trial Lawyers and with uh, the American Association of Justice and the GTLA, uh, Georgia Trial Lawyers. Um, and uh, and Adam and Tommy, thank you so much for being on the on the podcast. Thank you. For Happy to us. do it. Thank you. Honored. Well, um, <clears throat> so we're here to talk about the Sutton case. And um, and I and I wanted to mention, you know, so Tommy, you've never been afraid uh, about. I mean, every lawyer likes to talk about their victories, uh, and it's not hard to find lawyers who want to talk about the cases they've won. Tommy, you've never been afraid to talk about the cases that you've lost, and uh, and a lot of times, you know, as we all know, we can learn uh, a, a lot from those cases that we that that uh, you lost. And and one of the reasons why I mentioned that for the Sutton case and. And we'll talk through this that that you you all actually tried this case two times and uh, and and uh, essentially both verdicts uh, or resulted in hung juries and uh, and as we'll get to it I won't, I don't want to um, you know go too quick with the punchline but but um, the first uh, trial didn't turn out quite the way you thought it was going to turn out uh, and as I think you uh, you mentioned uh, that that it's uh, an expensive focus group and um, and I, I've definitely been there, and I've definitely had those those uh, you know cases where you spend a lot of money to learn how uh, what a jury didn't think was important, or uh, or you know, so uh, so. But it, it ultimately, um, I, I think this case in and of itself is is a um, is a lesson in perseverance and sort of. Uh, I always like to uh, quote Winston Churchill, you know, when he said, "Never, never, never give in." Uh, this is one. This case to me is an example of that because you did ultimately uh, prevail and do a fantastic job uh, for your clients, but it, it wasn't an easy road uh, to go down. Um, so let's talk about Sutton. Um, the case was Tucker. Uh, Tucker Sutton was is the child, and uh, um, Landon and Lori Sutton were the parents, and it was versus uh, Wellstar Health System. Uh, involving Kennestone Hospital and Greg Bauer, MD, who was the uh, OBGYN uh, in the case. And this case was tried in Cobb County uh, State Court uh, in front of Judge Tankesley. And, and I've had the, uh, the uh, honor of trying cases in, in Cobb County in front of Judge Tankesley. So I, I know uh, what it's like. And I know that Cobb County, um, for our listeners who don't know, in the state of Georgia, uh, Cobb County's not exactly a plaintiff-friendly venue, we'll just say. Uh, Particularly not, with Wellstar because they right. have so many employees. That's right, uh, and, and and not not uh, <clears throat> you know an an easy place to go uh, and 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 get a plaintiff's verdict. Uh, it's the uh, where Newt Gingrich came from, and so um, Tom it's Price. a very conservative. What's that? Tom Price. Tom Price. Yeah, so very conservative, uh, and uh, and can be a can be a difficult area to try a case. So Tucker Sutton, um, or uh, I should say Landon and, and Lori Sutton, Lori was pregnant with Tucker. Lori was older, she was 35 years old, 
and um, it was sort of told to her that she was that uh, Tucker was going to be a, a larger baby, um, and he was. He was an 11-pound uh, baby. Um, <clears throat> they went into Kennestone Hospital in uh, April of 2008, and um, and Lori went into labor, and <clears throat> our listeners may not know, and, and Tommy and Adam, please explain this more, but, it, but they had a fetal heart monitor, which is essentially uh, tells the heart rate of the, of the child uh, in utero, and, um, and you can tell if the baby is in distress if the heart rate starts racing, going up. Or going down. Or going down, right. Um, and in this particular case, um, Tucker's heart rate started to race, going up to almost 200 beats per minute. Uh, and on actually more than one occasion, what I gathered from the, the case, the nurses had turned off or silenced the alarm uh, of the fetal heart monitor um, it, and essentially um, masking the fact that, the, that this child was going into, uh, into distress. Actually, they raised the parameter. Ra okay, raised, raised the it up right. so that it was beyond what the um, the sound limit was. Okay. And okay. The, the trigger for the sound, right. for the alarm. But they raised it several different times. Right. Because the heart rate kept going up, so they kept changing the top parameter. It's called the systolic part of the heartbeat. Right. So okay. the normal heart rate is between 110 and 160. Yeah. You mentioned it got up around 200, and the alarm would go off when it was 170, and they'd raise it to 180 and 190, and they, they just kept raising the limit so that the alarm wouldn't go off. The last time it was raised, there was a, uh, a nurse who wasn't even involved in the care of the Suttons, and she raised it. And I asked her on deposition, why did you do that? She said, because it was worrying my patient. So, so you take away the alarm that is for the benefit of our patient because it was worrying your patient. Right. Um, so how did you, I'm sorry, I don't want to throw it off track, but how ahead. did you find out that they had done that initially? Did somebody just admit to it in the depositions or could you tell from the records that they were changing the parameters basically of the no, we, alarm? We got the um, audit trail. Aud the audit trail which is very important today with electronic medical records, what you get is not the record unless you have the audit trail. And the audit trail shows the initials of the identifying mark and when and what was changed. And that's what told us that the rates were going up. We got it from the audit trail. Got so it. what you could see on the audit trail was that the parameters were being yes. raised? Yes. And then, and then I guess when you asked them in deposition, why they were raising the parameters, it right. came out that it was because of the alarm. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Um, <clears throat> I think without the audit trail, we wouldn't have known that. Right. That's right. what I was wondering. Well, of course, Lori knew that the alarm had continued to go off, but she was unaware that they were raising the parameters or that the heart rate continued to rise. Right. I w I, <laughs> it's just so, so shocking to me. I would well, never think that would be done. Well, well, this is worth saying. The Suttons like the Yamadas. They were very, very trusting people. Even after the baby got out of Crawford Long and uh, was in, in the shape that he's in, they stopped by the doctor's office and he got a picture of him, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, they thanked him for everything he had done because they, they were not the kind of people 
that would think about responsibility that anybody was careless. Right. They, they, they didn't ever cross their mind. They didn't get top care. And I think that's natural for most patients to, to trust their, um, yeah. you know, doctors. Uh, you, I mean, you, you want to trust them and, um, and you, you want to believe that they have your best interest. And, and for the most part, they do have your best interest. Well, they ultimately went and saw another pediatrician and the pediatrician suggested they ought to see a lawyer. And right. that lawyer associated us to try the case. Okay. Um, one other thing I should have mentioned is that, is that while he was uh, in the womb, Tucker uh, passed meconium, uh, which is um, it's a very dark, uh, it's essentially uh, um, fecal matter. Um, poop, bowel movement. Bowel movement. Poop right. in the Yes, it's poop. Yeah. Exactly. He, he, he didn't want to say poop. There, <laughs> see, and that's, that's Tommy, the master trial lawyer, simplifying it for us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's, that's not all, supposed to happen. Right. It's not supposed to happen right. in the womb. Right. That's well, right. And that's, that's evidence of stress. It's, a, it's distress. The, the, the um, um, fetus is in distress. And um, and so then um, when uh, they tried to deliver, they, they didn't do an emergency C-section, and that was a big contention of the case, is whether or not they should have done an emergency C-section. And that's certainly what you were contending. Um, when they tried to deliver Tucker, he was a big baby, uh, 11 pounds. He got his uh, shoulder uh, stuck into the, uh, into the birth canal. Uh, and then I think it was at that point that Dr. Bauer uh, showed up and then actually delivered uh, a Tucker, and then Tucker went um, basically arrested, and, um, and without went, a heartbeat for 19 minutes. Yeah, had had no uh, had no heart rate, no oxygen, no blood flowing for 19 minutes, and and from what I gathered uh, from reading about it was that they were actually going to pronounce him dead, uh, but they didn't have a neonatologist there that could do that, uh, and then his heart rate came back. Um, and uh, That's why he's called Mighty Tucker. <laughs> Mighty Tucker, right. And we'll talk about the, uh, the book that, that, that you, that Tommy and Adam have here, the, uh, A Hero Needs a Hero, that, uh, that the Suttons uh, made for Tommy, which is just a, a, a beautiful book, oh, and I'm not yes. sure where it, where it got to it. Um, I, I think we moved it for all this delicious food we, we did. <laughs> that Debbie made for us. So when Tucker was, uh, was essentially brought back to life, uh, he was uh, profoundly brain damaged. Um, and, and that was essentially the case uh, that you ended up trying um, in Cobb, starting with, uh, with Kennestone Hospital or Wellstar Health System and, uh, and Dr. Bauer. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're 
They're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. So, <clears throat> Tommy, do you uh, want to talk, first of all, about, uh, you know, in a case like that, what sort of the complexities are of a case like that, why they're so difficult, and then how you went about simplifying, as, as we've talked about before? Well, it remained a complex case because there were so many different components. But when she arrived at the hospital, she was in labor. And uh, Dr. Bauer, as it turned out, was probably at the end of a 20-hour shift, 24-hour shift. He had been there for quite some time. And I'm sure it's not in the records, but I'm sure the nurses didn't want to bother him, you know, unless it was time really to deliver the child. And so that's one reason that uh, they kept doing what they were doing. Um, it was interesting that uh, we all know that the doctors wait in the call room, but I had George Pearl go out with his camera and take some pictures. And one of the pictures he brought back was very interesting. They have a sign that says doctor's sleep room, not call room. Right. <coughs> I remember reading that uh, because the, the, the defendants in the case were trying to argue, well, the doctor was right there. He was on call. But as you said, he was at the end of a 24 hour shift and he was in this room that that was not called the on call room. It was this room called the physician sleep room. Right. Um, but he did have a computer in there and he could have watched if he wanted to watch. But uh, well, the alarm went off in his room. And I don't know. Right. right. You know, but. Um, Anyway, she was there. Tucker was in distress from the time he arrived, and it just got progressively worse. And um, the um, case involved Dr. Bauer, who wasn't really that much involved because the nurses didn't call him that much, but when he was there, he should have decided either to follow her more closely or to go ahead and do a C-section early on. But uh, he didn't. He went back to the sleep room. And um, Lori testified that even though uh, Landon's uh, child by prior marriage had been born at Kennestone, they thought it was the best hospital that they could go to. And she looked at the website and it said that it was a class three, a class four, and no better health care can be provided to you and your uh your, your newborn, than here at Kennestone. And they have a lot of neonatologists and they have a lot of neonatal nurse practitioners. None of them happened to be there at 6.30 in the morning because it wasn't from 7 to 11, you know, or whenever the shift was. They, I, I, don't, I don't think they really had a definite schedule, you know, that they had to follow. And they certainly didn't have a schedule they had to follow to make sure that there would be a specialized neonatologist. So this baby that was born dead, if you will, who could have been resuscitated, was in the hands of people that weren't able to resuscitate. 
you know, and and the people that could have resuscitated weren't there. But that's how the case gets complicated because at the first trial, it was going to be a long case anyway, but I decided that if we could prove that the nurses and Dr. Bauer should have done a C-section earlier, then all the resuscitation stuff didn't count. You know, the fact that they weren't there and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, so that's what we focused on. That's what the first trial was on. And the jury came back saying they had reached a verdict as to one, but we can't reach a verdict as to the other. I moved the court to accept the verdict that they had reached because we every lawyer in there knew they had found against somebody. And uh, everybody believed they had found against one of the defendants. Right. 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 So so what you had heard is that they had found against one of the de defendants, but were hung on the no, other. No, no. That's, That's not what, what we heard. Uh, what we heard was they had decided as to one, but were undecided as to the other. Okay. But we assumed. We assumed and the defense counsel assumed that when they said they had decided as to one, that that meant that they had found one of them liable. Right. The and dad, and dad moved the court to accept the verdict that they had decided upon and to declare a mistrial as against the, the other. And we'd come back and try the case against the defendant that they were hung on. Defense counsel objected to that um, strenuously. They didn't want any part of that. And the judge went along with them. That was, um, uh, the, the law was unclear at that time, yeah. you know, ab about what effect that would have. And she just declared a total mistrial. Well, the defense lawyers found out from talking to jurors that they had actually found in favor of the hospital, but had not reached a verdict as to Dr. Bauer. And that <laughs> message, importantly, came to the court's attention and then to our attention about being decided as to one and undecided as to the other in the form of a written note. And those were the words on the note. Right. And so after the defense lawyers found out that the decision was actually in favor of the hospital, the judgment of mistrial had already been entered as to all defendants. They filed a motion um, before Judge Tanksley to vacate the order of mistrial and to make the note a verdict. S suddenly then, they thought that Tommy's idea was the right idea. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. exactly. But, exactly. The, but the judgment had already been entered. Right. And um, of course, uh, we then had a hearing on that issue. And uh, interestingly, the lead counsel for the hospital that was advancing that motion did not show up for the hearing, but sent a junior associate to argue it. <laughs> and we didn't get a chance to respond in the oral argument because Judge Tanksley interrupted the young, young lawyer who was trying his best to make the argument that a note um, that had been sent out uh, by the jury, which was not signed and not right. dated, could somehow be a verdict. Was not a verdict um, that it should be. And she well, Adam, they had them. affidavits from jurors too. <clears throat> they had three affidavits from 12 of the jurors that supported this uh, idea that. Or, or this uh, this conclusion that they that the whole jury had decided unanimously in favor of the hospital. Judge Tanksley interrupted the young associate defense lawyer and said, "Can you just uh, provide the court with one with one decision from anywhere in this country 
in all of the United States where a trial court has accepted an unsigned, undated note from the jury and made it a verdict. And he said, no, Your Honor, we looked and we hadn't been able to find one. And she said, well, there's no, I've read your briefs and there's no need for you to continue your argument unless you insist, but I'm going to deny the motion. And so that was the end of that. But then we were off to the Court of Appeals on that very issue. The defense appealed it. Right. Yeah. Got it. And I think we should mention, because I don't know if we've ever talked about it, that if you if you have a jury that can't come to a verdict, yeah, that's good I don't point. know if we've ever talked, if it's come up on a previous episode. Right. So for our for our listeners who may not know this, that, um, you know, in Georgia, it's not this way across the country, but in Georgia, you have to have a unanimous verdict. Uh, it, so it's got to be uh, all 12 have to agree. Uh, and that if you can't get all 12 to agree on all issues, uh, then uh, after some back and forth and the judge uh, sending them back saying that they must get a verdict, eventually the judge can declare a mistrial. Um, and so then the case essentially uh, will you know, get rescheduled and will be tried again. Um, and so that's what happened in this case. And, and one thing I read, Tommy, that I thought was was uh, fascinating was that you had actually considered and I assume because you thought that you had a, a verdict against one of the defendants that you and I think at some point you must have learned that there was a verdict as to the hospital because I thought I read that you considered uh, dismissing Dr. Bauer in order to accept the verdict of the uh, involving the hospital was that was that at some point considered I don't remember that okay, okay. but we did have a high low with Dr. Bauer that and that was in the second trial I think we had the high-low all of the time. Okay, okay. And we've talked about this before. Um, a high-low is uh, when you go to go to trial, uh, essentially the low is a number uh, agreed upon by the parties. Let's call it $100 uh, that if, you, if the defense wins, then the plaintiffs get $100. Um, and then the, there's a high that could be you know, a thousand, a million, you know, whatever number it is. Uh, and if the plaintiffs win, no matter what verdict they get, um, they're they're capped at that high, that 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 you know one million dollars or one thousand dollars, whatever the high is. And, then and if anything, the verdict is anything in between those two numbers, you recover that number. That's right. Yeah. Right. And and I I can tell you I've actually had uh, I I too have actually been in Cobb County trying a mi- medical malpractice case, and we'll talk about this where I've actually had a hung jury, and um, and we uh, we did a high low. And we came to a number that if the jury was hung and you know couldn't come to a decision, then there'd be a, a middle a middle ground number. Um, but and that's in fact what did happen in that case. Um, but um, but so you so you had a high low with the with the doctor and uh, and we'll get to um, the result of the second trial, um, which I, I think was also equally as fascinating as far as, you know, how you dealt with the, the jury issues in that case. Um, but I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, a, as I said earlier, you know, Tommy, you called this an expensive focus group. Um, and, and many times a trial that uh, it doesn't turn out the way you want, that, that is how a lot of us will refer to them as these are, it, it's a very expensive focus group. And I guess what I'm wondering is what, what did you learn from the first trial that you then change for the second trial uh, because of the result that came out in the first time? Well, we we pushed the uh, other uh, aspect of liability against the hospital for not having coverage there, you know, to handle the resuscitation. And we didn't push that in the first trial. Okay. And that that meant 
a lot of new witnesses and travel and stuff like that. And um, but we had we had both counts, you know, that we pushed in the second. We we would have pushed had we gone to trial against them in the second case, but the hospital settled with us, right? You know, before we went to trial in the second case. So all we had remaining was the high low with Dr. Bauer, and the most we could have ever gotten collected would have been the high. And uh, the jury foreman told us that they would have reached a verdict and it would have been something we'd want to put on our website. Right. You know, but uh, <laughs> but that would have been the only reason because even with the high low, they could still appeal again. Oh, right. And the okay. Suttons, Suttons were totally fed up, you know, with the litigation process and all that. And the reason we did the high low with Dr. Bauer is they really liked Dr. Bauer. Right. You know, and they, they, they really didn't feel comfortable being plaintiffs in a lawsuit against anybody, but they're such magnificent people. You have to understand that Tucker can't handle his own secretions. So even during the trial, they'd have to go out in the hallway and suction him. You know, otherwise yeah. he'd, get caught, he'd get caught up and couldn't breathe. And one of them had to stay in the bed with him all the time uh, and one of them would go to work and they didn't get to spend any time together because one of them had to be in there with him at all times. And if they did sleep any, it was napping because if he started coughing, they'd have to suction him and they still suction him, you know, routinely. Yeah. So, so for three years, he was born in 2008. The trial didn't take place until 2011. This mother and father didn't sleep. You know, and then, of course, the second trial was in 2014 because of the delay involving appeal. that appeal, which was summarily rejected by the Court of Appeals and affirmed yeah. by the trial court that you can't make a note sent out by the jury a verdict, um, which we would have thought everybody knew and was settled yeah. law before that even took place. One of the things I remember learning from the first trial that was rather shocking because it and might be shocking to y'all because as in your description of this case, you seem to focus on the fact that the hospital was aware of the rising heart rate and then the silencing of these alarms. And that seemed to shock everybody that nurses could know that the healthcare providers could know that and then be silencing it and have this other nurse come in that was taking care of another patient who silenced it for the last time because it was alarming her patient. Well, the evidence that Wellstar presented in the first trial was that they did do, they did not deny doing that, but they also um, uh, presented evidence that while Dr. Bauer was not aware that they were silencing the alarms, they uh, presented evidence that Dr. Bauer was aware of the rising heart rate and that Dr. Bauer didn't do anything about it. And so the jury didn't receive that conduct the same way we anticipated they would, uh, which is why the breakdown was 10 to 2, 2 in our favor, 10 in their favor, with our theory against the hospital. Uh, so they were unanimous against the hospital, 10 to 2 against us with their um, decision about Dr. Bauer. That's how the breakdown was. Oh, so I, I guess I hadn't heard that. So the the they were split ten to two against you with the, with regard to Dr. Bauer at the end of the first trial, right? And what's okay. significant when we talk about the second right. trial 
is they were 10 to 2 in our favor and and, and but not on liability on whether to award 25 million or 15 million wow so but we didn't know that yeah we'll get to that in a few minutes <laughs> right but still talking about the lesson i remember learning from the first trial was that the jurors in that case didn't think so much of the nurses silencing the alarm because i think they believed dr bauer was aware of the rising heart rate another thing that you can't predict happening in the middle of a trial happened and I don't know whether it had any impact on the jury's consideration of the evidence or not, but it stuck with me. During the middle of somebody's examination, um, an alarm went off outside the courthouse for the whole Marietta Square. Loud. So loud that the judge had to stop the, the presentation of evidence to let the alarm stop. And what was significant about that is everybody heard it. And nobody did anything. We didn't leave. Right. We didn't investigate what oh, the alarm, God. the judge didn't require anybody to investigate what the alarm was about. We just waited a few minutes and then picked up as usual. So there was no testimony that sometimes alarms don't require a change in conduct, but nobody <laughs> in that courtroom changed their conduct as a result of that alarm. Right. Now that's an entirely different scenario than a, electronic fetal monitor alarm going off, but it it did not get past me right. that that had happened. And I wondered what impact it might have on the rest of the presentation of the evidence in that case. Right. Well, when I read about this case, I the thinking about the that first mistrial and reading what you had said, Tommy, about the, the conditions that the clients were living in at the time leading up to that trial and, and the poverty that they were dealing with, that had to be so hard to have to, for them to have to deal with and for, for you all to, for them to find the strength basically to do it all over again. I mean, how well, did you handle that with di them? Different lawyers would have said we've had enough, you know, that we ain't spending some hundreds of thousands more you know, on a second trial now, but we don't quit. You know, once we take it on, we see it through to the end. Yeah. You know, whatever the outcome might be. And were your, um, were your clients on the same page? Were they ready to they would keep have done, fighting? They would have done whatever we said do. Yeah. yeah. They, they had basically turned it over to us. But it, it was very difficult. Um, and I remember how difficult it was, particularly for Lori to sit there and listen to the descriptions of what was happening to her previously healthy child over that period of time and then justify why um, the standard of care didn't require them to do anything any differently than what they did. That was very difficult for her to sit there and listen to. Right. Well, and, and I just think about, you know, clients that I've, you know, prepared and they've gone through their depositions and even that's been so painful for them to relive those things that they're, you know, they've kind of really got to psych themselves up to get ready for trial because the deposition can be so painful. So to go through that whole process and then have to do it again, I'm, I'm sure had to be really difficult for them. And I, the other thing I always think about that I think a lot of people don't know is that as lawyers, we can we have these clients who are in these real can be in these really different difficult financial circumstances or medical circumstances. But we're very limited in what we can do um, outside of legal help. You know, we can't we can't give them money or, or you know, give them a, a better situation, even if we want to, because the rules of ethics and professionalism 
prevent that. So we just have to do everything we can as lawyers to help them. But a lot of people, like my parents didn't know that, that you can't just, you know, help your client who's having a hard time, even as much as you want to, at least you can't help them in certain ways. Anyway, I just, when I was reading about this case, that just really broke my heart that they had to go through the whole thing again. That's all. I just got a little sentimental for a second. Well, well, on on another sentimental part, and this may may rush us beyond where we want to be, but we feel so good because with the money that they got, they were able to buy a home up in uh, Canton, I think it is, or maybe a little north of Canton, uh, that this lawyer had built for his disabled father who had died. And so it was a home built for the disabled. It has a swimming pool, and it has uh, one side of it with a stairway with two bedrooms on either side, a bedroom on either side of the stairway, which are the bedrooms for the two boys from prior marriages that they had. And then they have a a rehabilitation room and a place for uh, a live-in caregiver to be in their bedroom. And... They got a van, you know, and a wheelchair and all, all these things that they wouldn't have ever had, you right. know, if it hadn't yeah. been for the litigation process. Right. And so it wasn't as much money as I would like to have gotten. And I have, I think they deserved more, but just the way things unfolded, you know, I'm so glad that we took the amount that we got, right? you know, because it, it did make the meaningful change in their lives. Right. And yeah. Landon was a paramedic, so... Uh, when he was at work, and Lori was a special ed teacher. I think those points were made earlier. But um, uh, little things, like there's no milk in the house. And there are two other young children, but older than Tucker. So you and I don't think anything about putting all the kids in the car um, and running to the convenience store even, let alone the grocery store, to go get some more milk. But when they had no help um, and this very delicate, severely brain injured child running to the convenience store is not an easy thing to do. Right. You can't leave the child in the car alone to carry this child who's now, by the time we get to trial the first time, three years old and weighs about 60 pounds, 50 pounds um, and is getting bigger. Yeah. Uh, with no with an with an inadequate automobile, inadequate transportation for him, uh, a stroller he doesn't fit in anymore, you know, is is very very difficult. Right. Well, and I read if that if not in if not impossible, and you just go without milk for a while. Right. right. Well, and I read that they were collecting loose change to take to the Coinstar machine to get cash for gas. Yeah. I mean. I said, I know I said I was done being no, sent. No, I, I mean, I, I think it is, you know, um, it, it is hard to understand sometimes, I mean, how much uh, uh, a loved one who's who's gone through, um, ha- has these medical issues can, I mean, really just absolutely bankrupt a family. And when you're able to recover for them, uh, it profoundly changes their life and their quality of life and the quality of care that they're able to give. Uh, and, um, and it's, you know, one of the reasons why, uh, I think we all love what we do. Um, so, um, 
I think we've talked a little bit about how um, the, this case was defended and how you were over to, uh, able to overcome some of those things. I, some of the things that I read that the defense said, and I, I just wanted to hear what you thought is, one, I heard they argued that while the heart rate was elevated, it wasn't elevated enough to really cause any serious concern. And then uh, that they also claimed that the neurological damage that, su that, uh, that Tucker had suffered was from a uh, maternal uh, strep infection in the in the vagina, not from this delay. Uh, how did you all deal with those issues? Which one? You want me to take that one? Or you yeah, you can go ahead. So the elevated heart rate was just one component of why the healthcare providers, and particularly Dr. Bauer, should have been alarmed about... Um, what was happening inside the womb and whether it was harming Tucker. I mean, an, an elevated heart rate is not a normal thing. And so usually there's a reason for that. There's a cause for it. <clears throat> In a lot of these kind of cases, what you see with heart rate changes are a decrease in the heart rate. And that is evidence of um, an interference of blood flow to the brain and, and consequently oxygen. So cord compression, the baby's laying on the cord because there's not enough amniotic fluid, or maybe it's after the uh, membranes have been ruptured, the water's broken and the water's run out. And so you have this intermittent pattern of D cells in the heart rate. In this case, it was the opposite. The heart rate was going up and everybody testified there was something that was causing that. And that was not normal. Um, but the elevated heart rate in and of itself is uh, all by itself um, may not cause brain damage in the early part of it. Um, but the baby was under stress. They got there um, a little after midnight or around one o'clock in the morning to the hospital. She was admitted and they recognized she was in early labor. Her, her water had not yet been broken. Um, and this was around the time that they were expecting to go in labor anyway. What everybody knew was during all 29 prenatal visits, Tucker appeared completely normal, reactive, moving like he was supposed to. All ultrasounds were normal, but they were aware from the ultrasounds this was expected to be a very big baby. Right. And big babies can present problems during a vaginal delivery where they get hung up and can't get out of the birth canal. And that can cause death if you don't get them out quick enough. And a lot of times, if you don't perform the maneuvers correctly, then it can cause a tear in, the, in a nerve that controls the arm and you wound up with a paralyzed arm for life. Right. And that is known as an obstetrical emergency called a shoulder dystocia. Right. So you had a rapid heart rate, you had um, a very large baby, and then at 3.30 in the morning, um, Bauer comes to the room where uh, he has a conversation with Lori and Landon's there um, about her progress in labor, and they do a, a, a vaginal exam to check her, her progress. And she's moving along, but not as quickly as they had hoped, so he, he breaks her water himself with an artificial instrument with a hook on the end um, and snags the bag of water and it breaks. All the water comes out, but so does, and this is the way it's described in the medical record, pea soup thick meconium. 
And Lori um, asked, is that meconium? And you might be saying, well, how would she know what that is? That's because she had had a friend who had had the same thing happen and she knew that that was not a normal thing. And so she asked, is that what that is? And Dr. Bauer told her, yes, it is, but don't worry about it. It doesn't mean anything. And them being the trusting people that they were chose to believe that. Um, and they were unaware of as to the significance of the alarms that had been going off, although they had asked some questions. What does that mean? Oh, it means the baby's heart rate went up, but don't worry about it. So you've got an elevated heart rate, a, a large baby. Uh, now the water is broken. And they also know that she was, uh, the water is broken and you got pea soup thick meconium, which is a, an alarming sign in and of itself. But you got three things that are alarms now, big warning signs that this may not be a successful trial of labor for a vaginal delivery. And you got a baby who's already showing signs of distress with this abnormally high heart rate that is continuing to rise and has been for the last three hours. One of the ways that we showed, um, uh, there's one other abnormal thing before I go to this, and that is, and you mentioned it, that prenatally she had been diagnosed with as being group B strep positive. And that's, that's not all that unusual. Right. Um, that's why they do that test prenatally is to determine whether the mother is positive for group B strep in the birth canal. And the standard of care for that is if you're positive when you show up uh, for labor or are put in artificially in labor, they give you a shot of antibiotics um, that will protect the baby from becoming infected. So, but they knew that there was, was that infection. And infection can be uh, a reason if, there's a, if there are bacteria in the amniotic fluid for the baby's heart rate to go up. And they knew that as well. And so all this was known at 3.30. And if they had been looking carefully at the strips, and this was what we were able to do at trial, and this was really dad's part of it, so I'm taking, I'm taking <laughs> it away from him. Um, but he, for a moment, and I'll give it back yeah. to him. And, and, uh, uh, we did several different things with the strips, and I'll let him go into that. But the, thing, the one that I thought was most helpful to the jury to understand is there's a concept in teaching. And that is the only way to learn something new that you do not know is to compare it to something that you do know. And so comparison is very important. It was very important to show that this child's heart rate and the variability between the beats or of the heartbeats was essentially normal when they first put the, the um, fetal monitor on the mother. And then to keep that normal strip, which was a period of about 30 minutes, um, and that the strip was normal for, for longer than that, but we had a piece of normal to show the jury what normal looks like. And we kept it on the top. And then every hour that went by, or the time that went by as it became progressively worse, on the bottom. So they would never forget and be able to compare throughout the entire course. So we're up to 3.30 now, and you can look at what the baby looked like when she was first admitted and compare the strip to what it looked like at 3.30 when Dr. Bauer was there at the bedside. And that is the time or within 30 minutes of that time that our evidence was Dr. Bauer should have called for a C-section. And if a C-section had been performed and Tucker had been born uh, by 4 a.m. or 4.30 at the latest, he wouldn't have had any brain damage. There would have been no need for a resuscitation. 
And that was our evidence in the case. And so it was a combination of several factors that were warning signs that they were all aware of that um, they failed you know, to do what was appropriate under those circumstances to protect um, this child. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve, that has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast and that's legal technology services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal technology services at ltsatlanta.com. That's ltsatlanta.com. I could follow up what Adam's saying there about getting the jury to understand. We got a maternal fetal medicine expert who's widely known throughout the country, Dr. Barry Schifrin, to come testify for us and we projected the strip on a screen, and then he had a laser pointer and he would point at and point out when it was too high and show the lack of variability and show teach all that to the jury. And I think that was very, very important testimony. And there was a motion made before the trial where they wanted to bring out the fact that Dr. Schifrin had been disciplined by ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And our position was, we won't even bring up any relationship he has with ACOG, so it's really irrelevant. And we felt the judge was likely gonna let them bring that stuff up. Mm -hmm. So we decided to bring it up ourselves. Right. So, and I'm amazed that at this, but Dr. Schifrin said he didn't realize it until I brought it out in the courtroom. He said that in, we'll say 1996, he was uh, censured by ACOG for his testimony in a certain trial. And after the censure, he withdrew from ACOG. And his father had actually been one of the founders of ACOG. So all this comes out before the jury. And Dr. Schifrin had, had been one of the ones that had actually invented the electronic fetal monitor. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, he's really a nice guy and got a lot of credentials and I don't know about the case that he testified in, they censured him on. But we do know that ACOG has been down on any of their members who testify for, for victims, you know, right. in cases right. like this. And not censuring the ones that testify for the defendants in this right. case. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I have his CV and I said, now Dr. Schifrin, this shows that you were a member of ACOG in 1995. 
but you were not a member after that. And you've told us you were censured in 1996. I'm just making up these dates because I don't remember exactly. He said, yes, that's true. And that's when I withdrew. I said, but it says here on your CV that you received the award from ACOG as the outstanding lecturer in 1997. Are you telling me that the group that censured you gave you an award for being the outstanding lecturer, you know, a year later? He said, yeah, I think they were trying to get me to come back in, but I never did. <laughs> and so it just, all that blew away. It yeah. wasn't even, I don't even know the defense did anything with that after. They, they really know. didn't. They really couldn't because I think that Dr. Schifrin did a good job explaining how the politics of those professional right. societies work. Right. And they knew that the pedigree that he came from, and they knew what his contribution to the uh, obstetric world had been, that he was one of the inventors of the very machine and data that he was there to talk about. What was Tucker trying to tell everybody who was should have been paying attention yeah. through that electro, electronic fetal monitor strip and through the passage of the meconium that, that they were aware of? That's what he was there to teach the jury. What was Tucker trying to say? I think that's a really great way to put it is, you know, because when you look at a, a, a fetal heart monitor, I mean, to the average person, it just looks like a bunch of squiggly lines and you'd have no idea. And so it takes a trained expert to really read that and know what it says. But I mean, characterizing it as this, this is actually uh, Tucker who's, who's communicating and the doctors are the ones who are listening and they can read it and then walk it through. And then obviously did it, you're able to do a great job of explaining, you know, what exactly that means to, a doctor and what what they're seeing and 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 how they should be responding. Uh, it's really great work. There's uh, something on that point that you're making that I want to say, but it has to do with the summation. Yeah. So I can save it. No. Go until ahead. we get there. Go there. Can't you tell we have no structure? <laughs> yeah. Please. Exactly. We, we bounce all over the place. <laughs> all right. Well, well, before he does, um, I think it's important to know this. There was a change in trial strategy between the first trial and the second trial. Um, on several different levels, but probably the most significant one was um, uh, in the second trial, the baby had one lawyer, Tucker did, and the parents had a, a different lawyer. Dad and I were still trying the case together, but I represented the parents and he represented Tucker. And the way that came about was um, we were headed, I was driving Dad to the courthouse for the pretrial conference. And I was talking to dad about what I thought was important in the case. And he was talking to me about what he thought was important in the case. <laughs> and neither one of us disagreed with the other one about what we each thought was important. We just thought two different things or the things we saw as important weren't exactly the same. And so he said, well, why don't you just represent the parents and I'll represent the child? And I said, I'm not sure we can do that, but I think we can because yeah, lawyers have done claims. it with consortium yeah. claims. Uh, but let's let's look at it when we get back to the office. Well, so we go into the courthouse and the judge comes in to, and and the court is called to order for our pretrial conference. And she says, is there anything to take up before we go through the pretrial order? And dad says, yes, one matter, your honor. And she says, what's that, Mr. Malone? He goes, well, <clears throat> I just want to alert the court and opposing counsel that um, from this moment forward, I represent Tucker and Adam represents the parents. Yeah. And, 
Um, so the decision got made in that moment. And I'm, with, I'm, with, I'm withdrawing as counsel for the parents. <laughs> well, so let me, as a procedural point, did that allow you to do two closings and it did, and, and uh, two rebuttals and closings? So we had we had the right to conduct two separate vortires, right. two separate openings, two separate directs of every witness, two separate crosses of every witness, and two closing arguments. And that was one of the issues that came up in the pretrial conference after that announcement was made. And we just assured the court that we understood the jury's ability to pay attention um, and that we had no intention of burdening them with uh, repetitive information and that sometimes it might be appropriate for one or both of us, one of us to waive the right to proceed with one aspect of that particular phase of trial. And, um, and so we'll, we'll get into later how it was actually divided up and how we did that. But we didn't waste the, we tried the case quicker. We had fewer defendants and more efficiently that way, I think, than if we'd have done it the traditional way. And, and it we really complimented helped the jury. each other's examinations right. yeah. and each other's yeah. statements. We didn't uh, replow the same furs. Right. Did the so defense he, like have a cow about y'all doing that? Like when you brought it up at the pre-trial? No, I think. We anticipated a lot of objections, but I think that they thought that we were going to end up wasting the jury's time and that they would take it out on us. Mm -hmm. So I think they thought that we were making a mistake. Well, you know, they, they, I, I, I had never thought about this before as far as, so, you know, normally in, a, in medical malpractice cases, I see this uh, more than others. I mean, you know, we, uh, when we try cases, we'll normally try to put the defendant or the corporate representative of the defendant on the stand in our case in chief and cross-examine that person in our case in chief. And when you do that in medical malpractice cases with more than one defendant, well then the, the, the uh, lawyers that represent the you know, uh, other defendant that's not being cross-examined, they'll wanna stand up and then they'll do basically a sort of soft cross or mock you know, sort of direct to really cut into your case. And so from a strategic standpoint, you talk about whether or not to, to do that. And I guess I'm wondering, so then when you put your clients or like, like for instance, if you were representing the parents, uh, um, yeah, Adam, did Tommy, did you get up and do a soft cross of the parents? No, we were really like a team. Okay. It was uh, yeah. like if, if he had, if he, th he didn't even talk to me about it, I didn't talk to him, you know. If he thought that there were two or three points that he thought were worth making, he would stand up and make them. Okay. You know, and I would do the same. Mm -hmm. So in the second trial, and I don't have the witness list in front of me. If I did, I could tell you what witnesses he did and what witnesses I was primarily responsible for. But since I represented the parents, I put the parents on the witness stand um, and did their direct examinations. Um, another lay witness that was called to testify was Landon's mother, the grandmother, who in the first trial we had decided really didn't have any significance because she wasn't in the labor and delivery room. Mm -hmm. And it turned out <clears throat> later, a couple of years later, after this trial, Judge Tanksley was honored with an award at an event that I was uh, present for. And she came up to me at that, um, at that event after she got her award, and she said, I just want you to know that in all the years of my trying cases before I was a judge, and of all my years of presiding over uh, trials in my courtroom, the two best witnesses that I ever saw testify at, at any of those phases of my career were Lori Sutton 
and Tucker's grandmother. And the jury was in tears at the end of Lori's testimony, and there was a break that was taken after the grandmother testified, and if there's time, I'll talk to you about what she had to say. Um, but the bailiff came up to us um, while the jury was out on break and, um, and told, told us that, uh, and they went on break as soon as the grandmother finished testifying, that one of the jurors was so upset she had gotten sick in the stairwell. Uh, with, and that's how significant what she had to say and how impactful what she had to say was in that trial. Um, I'll let Dad talk about a doctor named um, Kreitz, who is a neonatologist that saved Tucker's life. And, uh, and the guiding hand that was involved in that and that's been involved so much in Dad's life, actually. Um, because that also has to do with the grandmother's perspective of what was going on in this case. Dad, you want to talk about, I, I cut you, you were going to talk about the closing argument. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to, we, set, I wanted to set, the, <laughs> set the stage for why there were two separate closing arguments. And I think we've done that now, but now we're talking about Dr. Kreitz, but we can talk about whatever you want to. Okay. Um, Dr. Ann Kreitz was a head of neonatology at Crawford Long, I believe. Um, and um, she happened to be at the hospital while all this was happening because a member of her family, a loved one of hers, was having a baby. And so she was just there. And so when she heard what was happening, you know, she talked to some of the nurses or something, and she went in to see Lori and Landon and said that they had a cooling program at uh, Crawford Long where they could put a cooling um, cap cooling cap, and lower the body temperature, you know, of the baby. And if he had suffered brain damage within the last hour or two, it was very effective if they used it, you know, right away. And I'm satisfied that saved his life. It didn't give him back any um, use, you know, much. But... Um, she came to court and testified for us, and we called her back in rebuttal in the second trial, you know, and she was uh, uh, very, very good. Uh, and that's just one of those guiding hand things, you know, that there wasn't a neonatologist there. Right. You know, but uh, by the time she went back, I think there was a neonatologist that got there after seven, you know, and the baby was born like 641 or something like that. And... Um, um, yeah, and and I think I remember reading that. Um, so when all of this was happening uh, with Tucker, um, and and they were trying to resuscitate him, I I think they uh, gave Lori something to essentially calm her. Or she may have gone to sleep for a little bit, and then um, it was actually Doctor Kreitz who was there when she woke up and right. told her that that Tucker was now brain damaged, which is right you know, a, a doctor she had never met before, and that's the one who's coming to talk to her. But, right. yeah. and, and a doctor not even on the staff at the right. hospital. Exactly. A visitor. A yeah. visitor. But they had this life-saving procedure, and they arranged to get him down there by the ambulance, you know, and get, got all that done. So the and, grandmother had been out at waiting, you know. And well, let not, me say this about the grandmother. In the first trial, we needed somebody to keep Tucker you know, because he couldn't be left at home or anything. Right. So she sat in the back of the courtroom with Tucker, you know, and maybe, 
maybe erroneously, I just accepted somebody had to do it and she was it and she was going to be in the courtroom so she wasn't a witness. We had to call and Adam talked to her more thoroughly than I had and used her in the second case. Well, I, I did and I, I spent, I spent, I was able to spend uh, or she was available more. So, something changed and I got to spend more time with her before we tried the case the second time. And, um, and I, I mentioned earlier in the previous podcast that from my perspective, these cases all boil down to a betrayal of trust and, um, people connect with that. They may not have had the same experience with their childbirth, may never have had a child, may never have had the type of injury that you're dealing with in your road wreck case or whatever kind of case you're, you're, you're trying. But one thing I believe all human beings can identify with is that they have trusted and they have been betrayed. And if they're really honest, they've been on both sides of that. You know, they've been the betrayer from time to time. And for Debbie Hightower, the grandmother in this case, to be sitting out in that waiting room, unaware of everything that was happening, where had she been aware, she would have been available to ask more questions and be an advocate for what was happening and to help. Um, but also to be sitting there next to Dr. Ann, Ann Kreitz, who was later really like, if you believe in this sort of thing, a guardian angel for Tucker throughout that entire time, but unaware of it in those moments. She expected to be called back after Tucker was born and walk into the um, recovery area after the, the postpartum area and see the bassinet that they had brought there for Tucker and to look in it and see her grandchild there. And the way I like to do direct examination of any witness, whether it's a lay person or an expert, is to put it in real time, in present tense. And to set the scene and to have the jury looking at the same thing the witness is looking at. Um, if there are smells that are important to help the witness get back there to more vividly testify about what the experience, we might talk about that. But the scene setting and the mood and the climate and all of that, I think, is very important. And so we, we walk through those things without taking too much time. But when we got to the portion of Debbie Hightower's testimony where she walks into the room and she's standing in the doorway and I ask her, look in there and tell us what you see. And she's looking at the jury and she says, I see Lori, she's laying on the bed. I look around and I see the bassinet and you can see that she's starting to choke a little. And I say, walk over there to that bassinet. Of course, she's sitting on the witness stand. And look in there. Tell us what you see. And she starts shaking her head from side to side. And tears come down her face. She said, there's supposed to be a baby in there. My grandbaby's supposed to be in that bassinet. He's not there. And she goes on, and, and, and it really sets the mood in the courtroom for what she was experiencing, the tremendous letdown that Lori was experiencing, and Landon was in the room pacing, 
and had thrown everybody out of the room. Um, once they found out that Tucker was brain damaged because they didn't know what else to do, where to turn. And then the rest of her testimony was she had to take Landon six foot five, um, a giant of a man, but a, with a teddy bear heart. Um, one of the finest people that you would ever meet in your life, but not somebody that you want to betray. Um, it's probably 8.30 in the morning by now, or 9, during the week in metropolitan Atlanta. And they've got to get from northwest Atlanta and Marietta all the way down to uh, what's now Emory Midtown, but it was Crawford Long uh, Hospital, through the rush hour traffic. And we're still in present tense, and Ms. Hightower is explaining what it was like for her seeing her baby her big baby totally powerless to do what every father believes they were put here as a father to do and that is protect their child and he starts pounding the dashboard on the car and Debbie understands I mean but this is a big man and it car is not taking the pounding so well um, but then they get to Crawford Long and then the, the story becomes one of hope and salvation and survival and how they're able to reach deep within themselves and pull out everything that they have as human beings to protect Mighty Tucker and uh, all the healthcare providers there and it, it never occurred, you know, until you hear that story and you hear it in present tense and you hear the experience and connect with the betrayal, how important what she had to say was to really drive home the point this never should have happened. Right. That they had all the information they needed to get Tucker out of that womb where there was a problem and prevent this from ever occurring. That's definitely powerful and uh and a great way of presenting a, a witness uh to really bring it home to the jury um one thing i was wondering is is i mean we, knowing that that tucker was a large baby and there's complications with that alone and then you've got the uh, heart rate uh raising I, what was the defense's i mean why not do a c-section i guess what, what was the defense's explanation to that? That's a question we asked over and over. So, You want me to tell you the real answer to sure. the question? Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because uh, about five years ago, the C-section rate was off the chart. And any woman who was pregnant that went to the hospital that preferred a C-section could get one just by asking for it. And now the management of the hospitals are telling the obstetric department to not do many C-sections because it affects their relationship with the insurance company or the payors. Hmm. Wow. So that's why we have fewer C-sections. And if you tell somebody that, and th this might have been chronologically at the height of that, you know, uh, 
insurance company, payor management, obstetric of a unit, might have been the height of that, telling them don't do C-sections unless they're absolutely necessary because they cost more than mm -hmm. vaginal deliveries. And, and I, I bet that's the kind of thing you can't ever prove, but, but I bet you that that, was, that played a role in this. That's awful. So um, this was the last case that Dad and I got to try together before um, his diagnosis. And um, so as, while I remember them all and will cherish them all, this is, this is one that's one of the most important to me for, for many, many reasons. And it was the first one, though, where we got to div uh, divide uh, the representation the way that we did. And because of the way this case, um, because of the way we complimented each other, um, I suspect we would have continued to do this in every case where the circumstances permitted us. Uh, it really worked out well. Um, and there was no wasting of the jury's time. I wanted to stay focused on the human story of betrayal and the theme of betrayal in this case. And so all of my directs, and, and, and I did cross-examine some of the same witnesses that Dad cross-examined after he finished, but my, my approach was a different area than what he covered. And when he cross-examined after I finished, he, he covered something different. I remember, and I don't remember whether we called Bauer, Dr. Bauer for cross in our case or we waited for in the second trial or waited for him to testify in their case. But I do remember we both cross-examined him and my cross-examination of, uh, cross of him was very short. But I thought that Lori had done a really good job of setting the scene and helping the jury understand what was happening in the room at 3.30 in the morning when Dr. Bauer was there, the conversation that took place. And when I talk about how important the betrayal aspect of the case is, I don't really focus on proving the betrayal. I focus on proving the trust aspect of the relationship because the betrayal declares itself. Mm. And you don't really have to emphasize that. And so when I cross-examined Dr. Bauer, I took him right back into that room and I just told the story as if Lori was telling it through me to him as to what the jury had already heard her say and have him agree to every single thing that she said. And that only enhanced her credibility but the end of that was, isn't there an operating room right down the hallway from where you were standing at 3.30 in the morning? Yes. Wasn't there an anesthesiologist in the hospital at that time? Yes. Well, was there anything that prevented you from just saying to Lori in that moment, let's stop this now, let's go down the hallway, put you under anesthesia and deliver this baby by C-section in that operating room? Anything that would have prevented you from doing that? No. Well, I didn't need to ask anything else at that point. And um, let me tell you something else about it's so much fun to try cases with Dad. In, in the first trial, um, Dad, has, I have tinnitus now. That's a constant ringing in your ears. I have that too. So a lot of people do, I guess. Well, he's had it ever since I was a kid, and it really bothers him, and it interferes with his ability to hear. 
it interferes with my ability to hear too. I just don't admit it. I just act like I didn't hear. <laughs> right, right. Um, but he had gotten some new hearing aids um, in the first trial, and they were really irritating to him. $6,000. Right. <laughs> and I got them between the first trial and the second trial because I couldn't hear Judge Tanksley. Right. Because he's so soft-spoken. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so in the second trial, and I think he was really frustrated with the fact that, number one, he was wearing hearing aids and hadn't had to wear them before and just dealing with the you know things i find myself dealing with about getting older that i don't like you know i just wish i didn't have to deal with it well um in the second trial i think he was a whole lot more comfortable with where he was with whatever physical issues he had going on and one of those was with the hearing and so when the witness would say something and it just and I, I told you in the last podcast, there's nothing fake about this man. It's all genuine. It just happened to occur. Whenever the witness made a really valuable point, he didn't hear it. <laughs> and he literally. Yeah. And genuinely. And he would he's so tall, you know, and he was standing next to the jury box at the back so that he didn't obstruct their view of the witness. And he would put his big old hand up beside his ear and, and lean so far forward it, it'd make you think he was going to fall over. But the jury would lean forward too. As he would, as, would you say that again? And the point would be made even even better. Yeah. And so, you know, if I could have scripted that, I would have done it that way, but it wasn't scripted. It was just genuine, and it seemed to really work. He told me he thought the jury really liked me. Yeah. And I said, why? He said, because every time you put your hand behind your ear, they put their hand behind their ear. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. It's a good sign. Absolutely. Um, and do we, did we talk about, because we kind of jumped around a little bit, did we talk about the outcome of the second trial? No, we, I, I don't think we did. And, uh, Tommy, if you want to tell us the outcome of the, uh, the second well, trial. Well, we had the high-low. Right. And, and I think we did talk about it because the jury came out and they were divided 10 to 12 or something, 10 to 2 or something like that. And uh, the judge got us to all agree that whoever the majority was for, we'd accept that as the verdict. But by the time we got the message back to them, they had all agreed. So it oh. was 12 in our favor. Wow. And okay. So, so oh, they, I didn't realize that. I, just, I didn't realize that. So they just announced that the vote was in the favor of the plaintiff, but they didn't get to dealing with money but they had been talking about money back there. And so that meant there'd be no appeal and we got the high. Got it. And um, if we hadn't agreed to that, you know, then we might have had a, well, we would have had a 22 to $25 million verdict that we could put on our website. We still couldn't collect over the $2 million of the high. Right. 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 Yeah. And so, it, and that... <clears throat> That was against the hospital because the at that point the no the no, hospital had already settled yeah the so, hospital okay yeah. sorry sorry the hospital <laughs> had settled. switched got it so we had the settlement number of the hospital and the two million dollars from the doctor got it and right. that that's what it all wound up being now the thing I wanted to tell you because I know we've run a long time yeah but Dan Huff and Taylor Tribble and Adam and I appeared at a Georgia trial lawyer's seminar because they wanted us to discuss this case. And so I was kind of the moderator, plus I was plaintiff's counsel with Adam. Dan Huff was over there with Taylor Tribble. 
And uh, one of our members had been watching the whole trial and he got up and raised his hand and had a question. And he said, uh, Mr. Huff, I want to ask you a question. I saw most of the trial and I saw uh, the summations and I want to know what you thought of Adam pretending to be the baby in the womb screaming out, you know, help me, help me, help me. And Dan said, well, the truth is, I thought that was kind of corny. And he said, until I talked to the jury foreman, who was very, very impressed with it, as were all of the juror members. And then I said, because I was the moderator, I said, well, I've got to tell y'all that I was, I was almost embarrassed when I saw Adam acting like he was swimming around in a womb. And uh, I said, now that I'm hearing about all this, because I hadn't mentioned it to him or anybody, you know, uh, now that I'm hearing the jury was very impressed with it, there's one major takeaway. If I had done that, right. the jury would have known I was putting on an act. It just wouldn't have worked for me. You know, I would have been fake. I said, Adam, it comes naturally to him and he can do it and he can be believed. You know, it's part of the way he tries cases and who he is. And I said, but there's a major takeaway from this seminar and, and will be for this podcast too. If it suits you, if you're comfortable with it, then you do it. If you have to force yourself to do it or you're acting or not really truthful, don't do it because the jury will see through it. And so that's the takeaway. Be true to thine own self. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, we've talked about this off the podcast, but uh, I mean, you have to be yourself. You have to be, and it goes, it goes back to this, uh, um, you know, of being honest and credible with the judge and the jury at all times. And if you're acting, if you're not being yourself, then you're not being honest and credible with them. Uh, and, uh, and Adam, I know you want to talk because I want to give you a chance to talk about uh, swimming around. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, but it, it, I absolutely agree with you, Tommy, that you, that you have to do what you are comfortable with. And while it's always great to learn from other lawyers, when, you, when you're standing in front of the jury, be true to yourself. Go ahead. So, so Oscar Wilde was the one, I think, who said, be yourself because all the others are taken. Right. Yeah. And... Um, you know, that's not something I planned ahead of time. Um, and I don't remember swimming around in the amniotic <laughs> fluid. But I do remember being so in touch, feeling so emotionally in touch with the experience of what was happening with the mother, Lori, at the time, and the experience of what was really happen with, happening with Tucker. And I was in the portion of the closing argument of explaining what did all this mean? What, what is this electronic fetal monitor and the information that's on it? Why is it there? It's Tucker's only way of communicating what's going on with him before he exits the womb. His only direct way the only other indirect way is for Lori to describe what she feels going on in her womb. And she had described good fetal movement for 29 different visits and continued to describe it for several hours of this labor up until a certain point in time when she really didn't feel anything anymore. And um, 
I knew, and we've made this point in the previous pod, podcast, you need to know who you're talking to. We had two jurors on this uh, jury who were fathers present for the delivery of their children who were born by emergency C-section, one of which was born because the baby was big and another one due to distress. We also had two or three um, runners, marathon runners on the jury. And I knew they knew something about heart rate because if you train to run, you pay attention to your heart rate. And an adult heart rate is far, normal heart rate is far lower than a, a, a fetal heart rate. But everybody that knows anything about endurance contests knows that you can't maintain a certain elevated heart rate uh, as high as what we were talking about in this case for very long without your, your body just quitting, no matter if your mind is telling you to keep going. And so I suddenly found myself having become Tucker and understanding what it feels like because I have run some distance races in my, in my life and paid attention to my heart rate. I know what it feels like to want to continue going when your body won't allow you to go. And what my body is trying to tell me, you know, that I'm not listening to. And I knew that those people were connected with what was going on with Tucker and what the heart rate was saying and what Tucker was saying to everybody else. And I wasn't acting. I just was. Yeah. And Dr. Schifrin had laid the foundation for this by saying that was the baby speaking to right. the people watching the strips. Right. So I didn't care. Because I wasn't thinking about what would Dan Huff think of me? What would the judge think of me? What did dad, if I had thought about it, I knew exactly what dad would think about it. <laughs> but I was talking to those people in that box and to the individual people in that box. And I was gratified to hear that it made a difference to them while the rest of the folks thought it was hokey. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's a great point that you both make about sincerity, because I think especially if you're um, a younger lawyer, if you want to learn, there are a lot of people that will, it either, it either is natural because you watch somebody that you admire and you want to do things the way that they do, or, you know, some people will teach you this is the way you should do things and, to, you know, to do it another way is wrong and, and this way is the right way. Um, and so I think it's it's hard as a newer lawyer, especially because every time it's a risk in front of a jury. It's a it's a big risk to try something new or different. It's hard to find your own kind of style. At least I have found that. Um, but it's an excellent point to make that you can't model yourself off of somebody else. If you're trying to be like somebody else, you're not being yourself. Well, one, one point in my life that's probably worth uh, mentioning since we've talked about it before. But Melvin Belli was my mentor. Mm -hmm. And I got tailored suits with red linings because he had tailored suits with red linings. And uh, I remember being out in California and one of his senior partners, Seymour Ellison, <clears throat> called me aside and he said, Tommy, I see your suits and they're awful pretty. And I can, I met you when you first came out here and I know you're trying to be the next Melvin Belli, 
but you can never be Melvin Belli, but you can be the best that Tommy Malone can ever be. And I took that to heart, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, I've never tried to emulate anybody else. Did you keep wearing the suits or did you get, did you get rid of the suits right away? I didn't get rid of them. I just didn't buy any more with red line. Well, there is one part of this case. We've talked a long time about it, but I did want to make sure that we talked about it because since I know this case was tried in Cobb County and since, you know, at least Georgia lawyers, Georgia plaintiffs lawyers know that Cobb is not always the easiest place to try a case with the juries. Can you tell me, tell us a little bit about jury selection and what you were looking for in the jurors or, you know, what any uh, uh, methods you use or strategies you use as far as uh, finding jurors who would be, um, uh, you know, jur jurors you'd be comfortable with or jurors that needed to be struck for cause or something So like I did the general uh, questioning in the voir dire uh, on, in this trial and Dad did the individual follow-up. And that's how we divided it. I have a stand. We there are standard questions you would ask in any kind of uh, personal injury case, and then some more standard questions you'd ask in any type of medical case. But the questions unique uh, in this case to me were the ones where I'm looking for a shared common experience among the jurors and at, with what we have experienced, and it goes back to the trust and betrayal aspect of um, what went wrong in the case. And so that's how it was uncovered that we knew that there were folks that had had the ex a similar experience that Lori and Landon had with emergency C-section. I knew that there were runners um, in our jury pool that would understand heart rate and what happens to the body, you know, after a long period of time with an elevated heart rate. Um, so those are the sort of issues I was more focused on. Of, of course, we were focused on the ones where uh, the m members of the jury pool may have had relationships that were too close to the medical community to permit them to be objective um, and that type of thing, or, or direct relationships with the people that were involved. So, of course, we, we covered all that. But I, I really wanted to start laying the foundation for people to access that part of themselves that helped them to get in touch with and understand um, trusting and then being betrayed anything y'all did differently between the first and second trial and jury selection yeah we divided it where i did the general questions okay so he you did the follow-up i did all the questions in the first trial and then uh, adam made the decision about which ones we would take and which ones we wouldn't he was the lead lead striker if you will right <laughs> gotcha. We did a whole separate podcast episode on jury selection and how that works. So, well, yeah. what I do in jury selection, because you don't have the luxury, I don't, of uh, trying to develop good jurors. What I spend my time doing is trying to identify the bad jurors. Yeah. And uh, and then if I do identify them, I try to get them to say things that'll permit me to excuse them for cause. Yeah. But sometimes in a county like Cobb County, the vast majority of them are bad jurors. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you don't have enough strikes and the judge isn't going to remove everybody. Right. Um, so I think we did complement each other with my strategy of trying to um, trying to get people to get past whatever surface.
prejudgments they had and get in touch with what is the case really about? You know, whether you think there are too many lawsuits or not, you would still believe that in this scenario, this child was betrayed. Right. And this didn't have to happen. So that that was really my objective was to get to, was to get a fair trial, even if on the surface it appeared that these people's experiences or their natural biases wouldn't allow them to get there. Well, you go back to my early days in Albany. No matter what you asked people, no matter what the answers were, there were people, the vast majority of them, who would never vote against the power structure. Right. You know, no matter what, what the board hour was. So you try and see through all that, and maybe even the way they fidget before they answer is revealing sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, well, Wellstar yeah. is, is now the largest healthcare system in Georgia. And it was on its way to becoming that in, when we tried this case. And th they do all sorts of things for the community. So whether you work there or not, you, you're probably, if you live in Old Marietta, as they call it, involved with Wellstar or Kennestone in some way, they have a health club. So that may be where you go um, exercise every day. Right. And they're a good community member, you know, yeah. so that makes it even tougher. And either you have a relative that works for them or your next door neighbor has a relative that works for them or works for them. Right. Yeah, I agree with you, Tommy. I mean, most of the time in, in jury selection, you got to spend your time finding those jurors that, you know, really can't be fair and trying to you know, uh, develop a reason that they should be struck for cause, as we say. Um, there are a few of those counties where you realize that you, and, and they're, they're rare, but when you, when you get in there, that you need to protect the jurors um, as opposed to striking the jurors because it might be a, a better county for plaintiffs. Um, and I actually had a case against Dan Huff that we tried in one of those counties. And we, uh, at the beginning of our cases, we always file a, a bench brief for the judge explaining you know why you should strike jurors, and and it's always better to strike jurors. And um, and uh, we had gotten a, a verdict in that case. And right after that, uh, Dan called me up and said, uh, you know, that you remember that brief you filed with the with the judge telling why you should strike jurors? Can you send me a copy of that brief? Dan, <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm gonna have a hard time finding that. <laughs> yeah. um, well. Uh, we have taken up so much of your time, and uh, and you guys have been so generous uh, letting us into your beautiful home, Tommy, and we, we really appreciate it. Um, so I, I just want to say, uh, again, we've been talking with uh, Tommy and Adam Malone of uh, Malone Law, uh, based out of Atlanta, Georgia, and you can look them up at uh, MaloneLaw.com. We really appreciate it. And thank, thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Debbie and Haley, for our beautiful spread, I mean, Delicious. And, and letting us into the, to your home. Thank you, guys. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with 
or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.